That's good. So I'm here, uh, uh, got invited by Jason to be here. I have been the conference pastor since January, so still learning the ropes there, uh, learning what to do, and probably more important, learning what not to do, and uh, trying to navigate my way through this position. And so it's been an interesting time, and probably the best part of the job is, is I get to go out and see all the different churches and meet different pastors and ministers and, and get to see the diversity that we have within the EMC, and it's, it's kind of an exciting time, so I'm glad to be here. I won't wander too far away. All right. I'll stay, I'll stay pretty close. Um, so when Jason called uh, to ask me if I would speak, uh, I said, you know, sure. He said, so we're doing a series on John, and I'm like, oh, great. John's like my favorite gospel, and it's probably one of my top three favorite books of the entire Bible, so I'm like, love John. He goes, yeah, he said, if, uh, and we talked about weeks, and, and we, we figured out a date, and he said, okay, that's going to be uh, John 15. I'm like, oh, I love John 15. John 15 is like my favorite chapter of all of John, and, uh, you know, the, the whole story of the vine and the branches, that's like, that's like my, my favorite section the one that I've spent more time studying and looking at than any other passage. And he goes, yeah, you're, you'll start at verse 18. And I'm like, 18? What is verse 18? And uh, so I went, oh, sh you know, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. So I get off the phone, I look at verse 18, and I'm like, I read the heading. The heading is, the hatred of the world. And I'm like... I don't like this passage. So I thought about this. I thought, if I call him up and tell him I'm actually busy that day, and I roll the dice again and see if I can pick a different date, see what I could get. And uh, I felt a little bit of conviction about that. And so I dug in. And uh, so, so even though it's not a passage that I'm overly familiar with, I, I got into it and I said, well, let's see what the Lord has. Because if all God's word is good, then this must be good. And the fact that I keep skipping over it in my study doesn't mean that it's not worth looking at. And so we're going to look at that today and uh, see what John 15, verse 18, and into chapter 6 actually has to say, the hatred of the world. And so let's take a, a look at this. It says, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. I picked up, I had to replace my Bible last year because my other one was falling apart. And I, I, I went, one, I, I want to have one that has wide margins. But then I thought, I need to change translations. So I switched to the English Standard Version just so I would have to read the Bible kind of new and fresh. And uh, so this is what I'm reading out of today. And it says, if, and let's stop there for a second. It, it's a, when you, when you look at this and we go to this word, if, and you're going to see the word if many times in this passage. So when I read through it, I went, well, what's, what's that there? Why is that so prevalent? Why is that used so many times? And, and if it's going to be used a lot, then I need to have an understanding of what it means. So when I began to look at it, if you think about the word if, if is a conditional circumstance. It means that it's, it's not certain to be one particular way, that there are options here, that the, the, the the factors or the circumstances could change depending on your decisions or the decisions of others. And so he starts with this word, if. If the world hates you, 
Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, you would, you, the world would love you as its own. Now, these are conditional circumstances. So what that means right away is it doesn't mean the world is necessarily going to hate you. But they could hate you. And so when we begin to look at this, we want to see what we, what we have. And I'm going to use this little bit of an illustration a little bit, just so we can stay current on what, what we're actually reading. So when I went through this, in, in my head, I kind of think through patterns. So if you go into my office right now, on the wall, on the whiteboard, is this elaborate circle with diagrams, with words. That's how I process this passage. But I looked and I went, if I tried to give you that, we're going to be here for several hours to try to translate that. So we're going to give you the condensed version, but I'm going to give you these summaries every once in a while. So here's the conditional circumstances. And it's kind of set up as an if-then. The then isn't there, but it's kind of implied, and it's kind of the, what we see throughout the Bible. God will say often, if you'll do this, then I'll do this. And so we see this if-then statements all throughout the Bible, and Jesus is using this very effectively here. So he's saying there's these conditional circumstances that there may be. So if the world hates you, then remember that they hated Jesus before they hated you. Okay? And what you have to do is, is, is I don't know how far advanced you are. So if I ask a question and I go, you know, are we good with that? And I know you're Mennonite, so you don't like to be too expressive. If you just give a, a slight nod. It's kind of like an auction. I'm watching for the little nod. So if I go, you got that part? Just, just, just a little subtle nod. I got you. I'm not going to make you into charismatics. You don't have to raise your hands. Just, just a little, got it. Even a solid blink. Mm. Amen. Got it. All right. If the world hates you, then you remember that they hated Jesus before they hated you. Now, Jesus then throws this out. If you made a choice to be of the world, then the result would be that the world would actually like you. They would love you. They would accept you. They would be okay with you. So he lays out these two things. So if we were to draw a conclusion, we'd say, well, do we want them to hate us or do we want them to like us? We want them to like us, so let's be like them. And you go, no, 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 just don't, don't draw that conclusion yet because we've got to look through this. Uh, so let's keep reading. Uh, he says... Uh, then he uses this other word. He says, but. Now, but will also occur a lot in this passage. So if you have your Bibles, you're going to see that. And your translation might be a little bit different. But you're going to see this reoccurring word as well. And, and what does but mean? It means that there has been a change of conditions. That something was one way, but now it's another way. The condition has changed. So we lay this out so we can get an understanding of what Jesus is saying here. He says, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Now, the, the, the phraseology here doesn't seem very good, but, but the point gets made here. He makes these two statements. So let's look at these two statements, these two changed conditions. He says, but you are not of the world. So he's saying, you know, he's talking to his disciples. We can kind of say that we can look at that and understand that in terms of all believers. But he's talking to his disciples and he's saying, those, you, have, you have conditions that can change. 
that they're conditional. But then you have changed conditions. And the changed condition is that you, the disciples, you as a follower of Christ, are no longer of the world. You're not in that system anymore. And he uses another but, and even though it doesn't sound right in our English, it's, it's the way it's kind of written because he makes another statement about the change of condition. He says, but, and, and here Jesus, chose you out of the world. So he says something to his disciples that's very important. Because he's saying, but your condition, and for you as a believer today, we can, we can put ourselves in this. Your condition is, you are no longer of the world because you have been taken and chosen from the world. Now, if you were here last week, and you may have looked at this verse, in the good part of chapter 15, in verse 16, it says this. It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should what? You weren't paying attention last week. Bear fruit. Or bear good fruit. All right? He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Now, this is a, this is a principle that Jesus brings out, that the New Testament brings out, that's difficult for us to absorb. That we would be valued so much by God as an individual, you, me. That the Lord himself would seek us out to draw us in. So if you're a believer in Christ today, the awesome thing for you to picture is that the God of the universe saw your life as being worthwhile enough to dispatch his spirit and, and even his ambassadors to speak to you, to draw you out from the world and into his kingdom. That's pretty amazing. So even though this passage is the hatred of the world, we can draw a little bit of comfort from the fact that Jesus is saying, I want you to understand, as we're talking about this, the change of conditions. That you are not in the world anymore, you're separated from it, in it but not of it. And you're separated by it because the Lord himself has chosen you. Now, these are significant game changers. So what does he say as he goes on? He finishes there, this section, by saying, therefore. Now, therefore means there's a, as, a, as a result of the changes that have taken place. When you read your Bible, if you see a therefore, you always have to go back to find out what the therefore is there for, right? Because it's a sum of the, of the, of the products that we're talking about here. So the, the conditional circumstances that exist and the change in conditions come together, and here's your conclusion. The world hates you. Great. Thank you very much for that motivational talk. We'll see you next week. God bless you. The world hates you. This is why I don't like this passage. I, I'm, I'm not a people pleaser as much as I, I, I don't like to displease people. Does that make sense? I tend to be an optimist, so I tend to look for good in a situation. So by nature, 
I don't like this passage. I don't like this line. So when I got to this line, this is the part where I wanted to jump out and go, I don't, I don't want to do this one. Give me, a, give me a better one. Give me a happy one. Give me the vine and the branches one. Come on. But I look at this and I go, but what is the Lord saying? What is Jesus saying? Because this is an important point in the ministry. This is something, these, these, these chapters in this section, up to the, the, the prayer that he has in, in chapter 17, these are, these are life. These are the things that Jesus is saying, I need you to get this part. These are the part that we can hold on to, that, that we can thrive on. And his encouraging word is, the world hates you. So, there's your conclusion. This is the reality that exists right now. So we go, okay. Now, let's understand this. Let's go in and see where, where this takes us. Go to verse 20. Remember. Okay? So he's going to recalibrate now. So he's kind of said his opening bit. He's got their attention. He's got your attention. Now he's saying this. I need you to remember something. I, don't jump off now. Don't go off on a tangent and say, this isn't worth doing. Don't go off on a tangent and say, I don't want to do that. Don't quit. Because he brings them back. He brings the disciples back to a very important piece. He says, I need you to remember this. I need, you to, I need to build on this thing that I, that I said to you before. He says, remember the words that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. Now, do you know where that comes from? If you did this series, you would have to go back a number of weeks. I'll give you a hint. It's John 13. You know what happens in John 13? I'm getting nothing. Do you know what happens in John 13? Come on, somebody. Somebody give me a good nod if you know what happened in John 13. I'll give you a hint. It involves washing feet. Okay, you got it? All right? Now, put this together now. He's just saying, look... <laughs> Here's, here's the thing. I, I know you're following me, and you know, it's been a great ride so far, but if they hate you, I'm not saying they will, but if they do, just know that they hated me before, okay? Just, just get that. And, and the, yes, it's true that if you were of the world, they would actually like you and accept you more. But you're not of the world anymore. I can't, you can't go back. And, and I've chosen you. I, I really want you. So I want you to stay engaged. So, so therefore, just know that they're, they're going to hate you. But then he brings them around. I need you to remember this. Remember that time that I, I knelt down and I washed your feet? And you remember the lesson that that was? That I was willing to do that for you? That, that I didn't see myself as being greater than you that would be above that, but I knelt down and I washed your feet and I encouraged you to do the same for others. Remember that? Do you remember the point of that lesson? He says that, that a student isn't greater than their master. Now he brings them back. He brings them back to this, this bigger principle. And the thing we have to understand is, is the role of the teacher, the role of the rabbi, is not to, to constantly stay over the students. The role of the rabbi is to raise the students up so that the students become like the rabbi, like the teacher. 
that they will know the things that the teacher knows and be able to go further, that they will do the things that the teacher teaches them to do, and they will do even more. So Jesus brings them back around, and he goes, I, I, I know what I just said isn't really happy stuff, but I need you to remember what we've been working on, what we've been building on. Don't forget all the pieces we've been building in up to this point. I need to be able to tell you honestly what it's going to be like. But if you don't remember the lessons leading up to here, it's going to get messy. So that was a big lesson for them. And he goes in. And here he uses the word again, if. If they persecuted me, then they will also persecute you. If they kept my word then they will also keep yours. Now, in this passage, we see the if is another conditional circumstance. There's choices to be made. The choices to be made here are, are there are people that aren't going to like what you do, and therefore they're going to persecute you. They're going to oppose you. They're going to come against you in words and actions. And you got to keep in mind this, that there are some who kept my word. You see, we, we get stuck on the negative, don't we? We see the negative. We're, our brains are wired in such a way that we actually recall negative conditions faster than we recall good ones. Some people are faster at that than others. If we were to draw up bad things about your life, you would come up with those things quick. If I ask you about the good things in your life, you're going to have to be a little more reflective, for the most part. But look at these two things that Jesus says. He says, if the world... Now, who is it that opposes Jesus? And first of all, not everybody opposed Jesus. But here we're doing a little bit of theology here. If you go out and you do the works of Christ, who's going to oppose you? It can be people. It can be people within the church. It can be people outside of the church. It can be people. But we also know that, that one of the people that can oppose us is the spirits or the demonic spirits that may come against us. It may be a spiritual attack that we face. It may be people who are influenced by spirits that attack you that challenge you, that persecute you. That's why it's important for us to remember what Paul says later on, that, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. He brings it back to, to going, when we're opposed in doing the works of Christ, it can be people, it can be spirits, it can be spirits that are influencing people. Okay? That's an odd one. You got that one? We good? But then he says this, if some people kept his word, though, in other words, if when Jesus did things, people actually received it, then guess what's going to happen? Is there's going to be things that you do that are going to change people's lives for better, for good. That the expectation isn't everybody's going to persecute you. Some will, though. 
And the expectation isn't that everybody that you, you go to minister is going to be positively influenced by that, but some will. And all of a sudden we begin to look and go, oh, wait, it's not all bad. There's actually good that happens. And we need to remember that for as much as Jesus was opposed, people's lives were transformed for all of eternity. And they passed that transformation down through the generations. So are you going to be persecuted? Possibly. Are you going to be rewarded with seeing good fruits of transformation? Possibly. Both are equally probable. So, let's go a little further. Down to verse 21. It says, but... All these things they will do to you on account of my name. Now stop for a second. What's he talking about when he says all of these things? Now I'm going to guess. I'm not going to read your mind, but I'm going to guess that a lot of you go with the, the persecution. And I go, you're partially right. Remember, he named two things. He named persecution, but he also named good fruit. Now, why are you going to face persecution? Because you're doing the work of Christ. Why are you going to see results of people being transformed? Because you're doing the work of Christ. And what is it that's dependent upon you? Neither. Other than your obedience to do the will of the Father, to do the will of Christ. You do what you're supposed to do. You do what you're called to do. And some may oppose it, fight against it, and some may receive it. You're not to blame yourself that things went awry and people opposed it, nor are you to take all the credit for people accepting it. You look at both equally that it's because of Jesus and the Spirit of the Lord that is at work. Good with that? See, there could be some good stuff in this. So let's see where we're at. Let's give a summary here. We see these conditions that are operating. So if the world, people, demonic spirits, persecute me, then they, people, demonic spirits, people influenced by demonic spirits, will persecute you. Also, if some people kept my word, though, then some people will be transformed by what you say. So he gives us a but, because the consequences or the circumstances have changed. That there are consequences and there are rewards associated with doing the work of Jesus. So when the scriptures talk about suffering, it uses that term very specifically to refer to the opposition or the suffering that's faced as a result of doing the work of Christ. So he says, the condition that you're now operating under is you're under the kingdom of heaven. You're working under that kingdom. In that kingdom, when you do things, it's not that everything works out perfectly. But it can. And it's not that everything works out terribly or it's always persecution, but it can be. So the reality that we're to have as believers is that as we're obedient to Christ... We are going to see at times suffering, and we are at times going to see good fruit. 
that neither one of those should stop us or, or, or prevent us from moving forward in what the Lord would have us to do. It's sometimes harder for us to accept good fruit than it is for us to accept persecution. Somewhere in our theology, we get it worked in that, that to be persecuted is almost more noble than to be successful in ministry. And Jesus brings these both to the same plane and say, what I am doing and how I am doing it is up to him. Your job is to simply be obedient and to do what you're called to do. So how does this passage end up? Down in the bottom part of this, it says, because. Now, this is a reason for the changed condition. Because they do not know him who sent me. So who sent Jesus? He references it all the time. That he came to do the will of the Father. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And, and he, wouldn't, he, he didn't want to move ahead or fall behind what the Father wanted him to do. Jesus taught that lesson, that we're to be obedient to the will of the Father. But here he brings it around and he says, Now, I, in all of his time in ministry, and what he's passing on to his disciples is this, that there's a reason behind both of these responses, the response of persecution and the response of, of, of receiving the word. And it comes back to the fact that they just don't know the Father that there's a lack of understanding of the Father. So when you follow the will of the Father, you may not always please everyone, but you're able to reach some. But that's not on you. You're to be the representative of Christ, who is the representative of the Father. And to go into the world and, and be the hands and feet of Jesus, to do the things that Jesus is asking you to do. So if we pull this all together and we look at the picture again of, of where we're at to this point, we see this reality that Jesus has presented. That people just don't know the Father, therefore the reality is that people will react, they'll fight or they'll oppose or they'll persecute because they don't know the Father, or some don't know the Father but when they hear they hear about the Father's love and they respond positively to it or favorably to it and they receive the word and are transformed by it. So now we're looking going, all right, I think we're, we're getting this. Because he, he starts with the part about, about you're going to look in the temporary, you're going to look in the moment and if you get fixated on the moment of, of were you successful or, or were you persecuted, and it, if the moment makes you determine whether you want to do it anymore or not, you're going to be taken out quickly. So he brings them back to the bigger picture, and he says, now, now I'm going to pull you back, and I'm going to give you the insight to be successful in ministry, is that you've got to see people how they really are, that they just don't know the Father. They just don't understand the Father. They have a misconception of the Father. So as you go and you present the gospel, 
Some people aren't going to understand and they're going to want to come against that. But some people don't understand the Father's love, but now they're going to get it and they're going to embrace it. Okay? Now is it worthwhile to do, to persevere? Well, let's see what the next part. Verse 22. Jesus starts to talk a little bit about his life and he gives these ifs and buts throughout this. You see how this keeps reoccurring. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but change of, uh, the conditions change. But now, they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, hates my father as well, or also. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have, been, they have seen and hated both me and the Father. So let's take a look at this. Because Jesus makes two different sets of statements. Okay? The first one he makes, we're going to take these two pieces, because they're similar, but they're slightly different. I want to show you the difference in those. Jesus said that if Jesus had not come and brought his word, his spoken word, then the people would not be held accountable for their sin. So what the spoken word did is, is he presents his, his teaching and it acted as a contrast to their lives so that they could take what he was teaching and they can compare how they were living or what they were believing and they would have a contrast to be able to look and that would enable them to be able to see their sins and be accountable for their sins. Okay? Paul goes into a great deal of I've talked about this. James talks about this with the mirror. And he highlights this change in conditions. Because now the new reality is that the world has no excuse for their sin. Okay? Then he makes a second statement. And he changes the pitch just a little bit by saying this. But he says, if Jesus had not performed miraculous works. Now, what were his miraculous works? Well, healing, and he fed 5,000, and he calmed storms. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. Those are life-transforming works. I think there's a little bit of a prophetic element to this, and this is my stretch. This doesn't, you, you can debate this. I think you could add into that the death on the cross. That the death of a cross was one of the works that nobody else could do, that nobody else had done. To die for the sins of the world, to be buried, to resurrect, is the greatest work that Jesus did. So he's saying, all the works that I have done, the transforming works, again, provide a contrast to people. That they have to look and say, Wait a minute, I was broken and now I'm, I'm whole. I need to look at my life and be transformed. Now we don't have any excuse for that. You take the cross, but then he adds his peace. He said, they might reject my words. That's one thing. When they reject the actions, and this is where I would say the, the, the death on the cross and the resurrection, they're not just rejecting him anymore. Now they're rejecting the grace and mercy of God. 
it, it amps it up a little bit. You see that? It, it's a very subtle change. But he brings it around for us to be able to look at and say, the words of Jesus are powerful, the actions of Jesus are powerful, and they're transformational. And when we encounter the words and the actions of Jesus in our lives, it, it draws us to have to look at our lives with clarity, to see the love of the Father and make a choice of whether or not we're going to accept the love of the Father or not. And many of you have been in that confrontational place where you've made a choice to receive the gift of the Father, which was the Son. But we also know people, and maybe we've spent time in our lives doing that, where we've also rejected that. And we've known what it's like to carry that burden of knowing that we're outside of the, the, the right fellowship with the Father because we've been exposed to the words and the actions of the Father. Done through Jesus, done through other believers. So, down to verse 25 says, but. This is a change of condition. He brings us back around. He goes, okay, I've just given you all that stuff, but I have to, I, I, you need to understand this change. The word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hate at me without a cause. Now, it's a, it's a reference back to Psalms 35, and you can unpackage that a little bit. It's kind of a loose look, but, but he, he, he says this. He goes, you've got to understand that it's not about what you did was just or fair or what you did was loving and kind or what you did was right or, or not, that, that the rejection that can come can be, or in all likelihood will be, completely irrational. So for you to try to argue that, that what I did was good or what I did was out of a right motive or what I did was, was proper in, in terms of Scripture, that's, that's irrelevant because the, the rejection of Christ is not a rational rejection. That's why Jesus on the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them because what they're doing is completely irrational. If they fully knew the love of the Father and what the Father had given in terms of His only Son to die on the cross and the significance of Him dying on the cross for their sins, nobody in their right mind would reject that. But the rejection of Christ is an irrational rejection. And we see that spiritual element at work. So now, if the people who are persecuting you, if the people are rejecting you because of the gospel, are doing so because they don't know the Father, and, and, and the demonic spirits that are, that are fighting us knowing the will of the Father and knowing the love of the Father, if that's at work, is your heart to be bitter and angry towards those people or to be sympathetic towards them? You see, now the persecution becomes irrelevant to our state and our calling. Because if we're driven by the love of Christ, and, and that, that moment where Jesus is on his knees washing their feet saying, no student is greater than their master. Remember that. And he brings them back around to go, you, in order to survive this, You've got to see people the way I see them. They don't know the love of the Father. 
They don't know what they're running from. They don't know what they're fighting against. But your words and your works might get through. And my heart is that they will. But in the meantime, if they reject you, if they persecute you, don't take it personally. They did it to me. And if they did it to me, they're probably going to do it to you. So let's look at the change of conditions that we have. And we got a typo here. It's supposed to be the world will not respond rationally or reasonably to the good news and the good works. But you know what else? Is those that receive the word are sometimes accused of being irrational. For you to believe in a God that you can't see, for you to accept a provision that you haven't witnessed, that kind of defies logic. So it kind of goes both ways. But you know that when you receive Christ into your life and you step into that, what you experience defies all of your understanding. It's like what the scriptures say, where the peace of God transcends all of your understanding. And there's times when your testimony is not just a doctrinal statement. Your testimony is, I just felt this. I experienced the love. My mind all of a sudden was at peace. Because what we're dealing with is not just an argument and a philosophy. We're dealing with something spiritual that transforms. And that thing that's spiritual that transforms causes people to reject it or fight against it because they don't understand the love of the Father. Verse 26. This is the point where I started to get encouraged now. All right. Verse 26, but change the condition. When? Now, this is a powerful word. This is a word I like. Because this is now an absolute. This is a for sure outcome. Right? The if is conditional. You might choose this. You might choose that. They might choose this. They might choose that. But there's a change of condition. But it, it, it... It's only going to affect the people that actually receive that. But now he brings them into the when. He brings them into the promise. And if you've tracked along this far, this is the part where Jesus starts to say, now, if I can get you through this, I want you to see what's coming. When the helper comes. Who's the helper? Yeah, I see it. Holy Spirit, right? When the helper comes. He talked about the Holy Spirit earlier in John. He'll talk about it again because he starts to, to integrate this into his teaching more and more as he gets closer to the cross. And he starts to introduce them to this. The Holy Spirit, the helper. That, that, that word, even the way he used it, takes us back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, where, where God creates Adam. And Adam's all alone, and what does God say to Adam? Or what does God say about Adam? It's not good for Adam to be alone. I'm going to send Adam what? A helper. 
It's the, it's the design of God. So when Jesus comes to his disciples and gets ready to send them out, he brings them around to that same principle. It's not good for you to be alone, so I'm going to give you a helper that's going to come along and be there for you. And he, he presents that not as a conditional statement of if you do this or if you are good enough or if you are faithful enough, then you'll receive this. He doesn't say that. He makes this an unconditional statement that you will receive the Spirit when the Helper comes. And you know what? Those are the days that we're living in now. You're living in the days where the Helper has already come. That, that your faith in Christ opens the door for Jesus to give you the gift of his Holy Spirit, the helper. And what's the helper going to do? Well, first of all, we have to know that what he says here in the next slide is the helper whom I will send to you from the Father. So Jesus goes... We've been working together. I, I, and I'm not sure if you're ready for this, but I'm going to be leaving, and it's going to be up to you, and it's going to be up to you, the people that, that choose to follow me later. But I want you to know that this is going to be consistent. That when you receive me and you step into my service, I'm going to dispatch my spirit from the Father to you. So as a believer living today, you have the helper who's with you. That Jesus is sent from the Father. Again, seeing you being worthwhile enough to put the effort in to send the Spirit to you. That's pretty amazing. And what's the Holy Spirit going to do? He will bear witness about me. So the Holy Spirit in your life is going to remind you about the things that Jesus did. The Holy Spirit in you is going to remind you or give you a heads up of what Jesus would likely do in that situation. The Holy Spirit is going to enable you to have what it talks about later on in the scriptures, the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is to know the will of the Father. And look at this, verse 27. And you also will, let's underline that, you will, not you may, you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So that's not conditional on how good you are. That's not conditional on how many courses you've taken or how much training you've had. That's not conditional on whether you've been officially ordained or not. It says this, that if you receive Christ and receive the helper, then you will be a witness. You will be a demonstration or, or the example of Christ with the people that you come in contact with. And you will be that witness sometimes intentionally, but you'll also be that witness sometimes unintentionally. And when you're that witness, sometimes people are, will persecute you for that, and other times people will be transformed because of the things that you say or the things that you do in the name of Christ. And the outcome is not dependent on whether you've been, been, been proficient or good enough. The result is, if you've been obedient and allowed the Lord to work through you, 
and what the Holy Spirit does in that situation. That I will send. That the Holy Spirit will bear witness and you will bear witness. You see, the, the connection we have with Jesus is amplified by the presence of the Helper. And we go with that confidence. That it's not about me. It's about Christ working through me. So let's look at this in context. All right? Somewhere along the lines, you would have looked at this. And I'm just going to give you the headings that come out of the English Standard Version. Chapter 14, Jesus starts to talk and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, I'm the trusted path for your fulfilled life. He starts with there. He says, all right, we got that. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. This is me. I'm the direction. And then he goes into the next part. His next piece of teaching is in, um, in chapter 14, verse 15, where he says he promises the Holy Spirit. He begins to talk about the Spirit and what the Spirit is going to do. And what the Spirit is basically going to do is help people to keep the way, to follow the truth, and to live the life. Okay? Then he goes into the next part, the good part, where he talks about the vine and the branches. What's the outcome of the vine and the branches? That you, being obedient, will produce what? Good fruit. Not just a little, a lot. Much fruit. Father does his part, Jesus does his part, you just let it happen, and you produce good fruit. And then we go into this, this, this piece here about they're going to hate you. Which when I looked at it, I thought this was a negative, but what I began to realize is it's a turning point. This is Jesus being honest with his disciples, giving him a, a realistic look at what's going to happen in the world. It, it's what we need to not be disillusioned when we don't see the fruit that we think we should be producing. That we don't feel guilty when we don't see the fruit that we should be producing. Because then he's going to go in, in, the next, in chapter 16, and he's going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit is going to do to impact the lives of other people. And then he goes into the next part, which is your sorrows, because of persecution, will turn to joy. That's the life piece. And out of that, he says, I have overcome the world. And then he goes in to the last piece of this section, where we have the high priestly prayer, where Jesus prays for himself and what he's about to face. He prays for his disciples, and he prays for you and I. And you begin to look at this, and you see that this passage is the, is the turning point to experience the fullness of what God has. In order for you to get to the point where you can be used by the Lord, you have to accept the fact that not everybody's going to like it, but that is somewhat normal. You go back to that verse 26, but when... And that time has already come. We're already living in these days. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you accept him as the Savior of your life and you let him be Lord of your life, then the helper is there. Sent by Jesus to be truth in your life. Sent by Jesus to be an anchor point so that you will, will know the way, what you're supposed to do. Sent by the Lord so that you can bear witness to the things that Jesus has said and the things that Jesus has done. And some will hear and fight you on it and persecute you about it and ridicule you on it. But others will receive it. 
and their lives will be transformed in part or in whole because of what you do. Because as the Lord works through you, in whatever capacity you allow the Lord to work through you, it can have an impact in people's lives. So the storm clouds that we face are momentary. And, and what we need to do is when we're in that, that time of, of challenge or a, a persecution is to look past that, to look beyond that with the help of the helper, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to look beyond that to see what the good fruit is that lies just ahead. To see that, that what you're facing and what you're, what you're investing in, what you're pouring your energies in is worth it because the Lord gives you a little bit of a glimpse of, of what's coming down the road. That we don't get consumed by what we see right here in this present moment. But that we'd be willing to press on and go a little bit further. In chapter 16, he finishes this part. He said, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Yeah, that's the important part. That's, when I got to this part, I went, that's okay. I get it now. We need to know as believers that sometimes it's rough. And we need to know as believers that sometimes, though, we see the glory of God. And we need to know as believers that because something doesn't work, not necessarily is that because there's something wrong with us. And when something does go well, it's not just because we're so great. That we get grounded in the fact that it's Christ. That it's Christ, and Christ gets us grounded in the fact that it's the Father. So here in conclusion, I'll give you your takeaways real quick. Number one, when you're facing trials, when you're facing difficulties, or even when things are going well, press in to know God's Word. Read the Scriptures. Pray. Listen. The Lord has a way of sometimes impressing things upon your heart or laying things on your mind that are His Spirit communicating to you. Pay attention to what God might be saying. Number two, don't take on the guilt and shame. We're good at this. If it didn't work, it's because of me. If, it, if they person rejects Christ, it's because I didn't do it well. And we, we take on guilt and shame. Don't take on guilt and shame. If you've done something wrong, repent of it. Give it back to the Lord. But more than likely, the enemy is going to come in and, and start pointing fingers. Don't play to that. Don't let the guilt and shame get rooted. Also, don't turn to others and blame them. Well, I could, have been, I could have been successful if Jason hadn't taken over. You know, I could have done this if it wasn't for, and, and we, we can get into accusing to make ourselves feel good. Don't fall for that trap either. Number four, ask the Lord to open your eyes to the good fruit that is being produced. Sometimes what we need to see is, is just the, the, the sprout. Sometimes what we got to see is, is the bigger picture. Sometimes we just have to get a glimpse of the fingerprints of God on it so that we can go, I don't know what's going on, but there's a little bit of evidence here and I'm going to keep pursuing it. It's okay for you to, when you get into those dark places, to say, Lord, I just need to see something. Give me just a glimpse of the good that you're doing in this day. 
Number five. This was a typo, but I actually like it the way it's written. Give thanks, I'm going to say to the Lord, give thanks for the Lord. Take it either way. Thank the Lord for his word. Thank the Lord for his sacrifice. Thank the Lord for what he's done. Remind yourself. Say it out loud sometimes. Remind yourself of what Christ has done. So when you look at your own life, you see it in light of what Christ has done. And give thanks. Have a thankful heart. Number six, trust the Spirit's leading and focus on staying aligned to the peace of the Lord. Sometimes we get off track and and the Holy Spirit has a way of just making us feel uneasy about that. And we come back in and we get back into that sweet spot. And even though the circumstances around us might not change, the storm clouds might not dissipate, but, but we know that we're in the right spot and we can be okay with that. And just learn to trust the peace of the Lord. And number seven is leave the concerns with Jesus and the Father. Lord, I don't understand why this person is being so difficult, but I give them to you. Lord, I don't understand why, why this ministry is being so effective. But may I not become prideful. I give this back to you. And the journey that we have, many times we're in this cloud times. And this can be a challenge. And this passage is actually quite encouraging. At least I think so. That, that in the midst of all of this, in the midst of the, the whole big picture of what Jesus was doing, he was looking at these disciples and, and conversely, I think, seeing beyond them and seeing us as well and saying, I know what you're facing. And I need you to know that I know what you're facing. And I know the fears that you have in doing what I call you to do. I know the fears that you have in stepping out and saying what you need to say or doing what you need to do. I know what it's like. But trust me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Trust me. Even when you're in the middle of the storm, that there's good fruit that will come out of that. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that your word encourages our very souls, that your word speaks to our hearts and helps our minds to come in line with what your word says. Lord, we pray now that we would be encouraged to press on, that we would be encouraged to stay the course, that we won't be overcome by the things people say or the things people do to discourage us, but we will press on with your helper at our side to do your will. And anything that goes wrong, Lord, we entrust it to you. And anything that goes right, we give you the praise and the glory. So may you use our lives as we're willing to be an example of you to the world. And we thank you that you are faithful to work through us in these days. May you be glorified in all that we do and all we say. In Jesus' name, amen.